Chapter 8 of Zafloya. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Gines, Salt Lake City, Utah. Zafloya by Charlotte Docker. Chapter 8. It may be naturally presumed that the mind of Victoria remained bent upon escape. Not a day passed that she did not induce Cato to extend their walks farther and farther from the outlet, an outlet the Signora little thought they would ever discover, much less dream of attempting. Every day, too, did she contrive to make silent, though accurate observations, as to the direct course it would be most proper for her to pursue. At length, unable to bear continued procrastination, she determined to put in execution the plan that had been so long arranging in her brain. Accordingly, on the following evening, when the unsuspicious Cato had been lured by her kind and condescending manner to accompany her far, infinitely farther than they had ever yet ventured, she suddenly stopped short and thus addressed the astonished girl. Cato, I will never more return to Il Bosco. My term of slavery is over now. I shall bend my course whither I please, to the east, the west, the north, or the south. Listen, therefore, to what I have to propose. Exchange instantly your apparel for mine, and by your prompt acquiescence merit this diamond ring, which has been concealed from the old Signora, and which I will in that case immediately bestow upon you. You can easily, as we have hitherto done, return into the house unperceived and array yourself in some of your usual attire. Should you be questioned as to my escape, swear, what will be true, that you was not privy to it. Should you be questioned as to whither I am gone, swear, what is true, that you cannot tell." If, even after all of this, the Signora should think fit to discharge you, I do not see that you will have anything to regret, and, with regard to any advantage you might think you lost, this ring, which is extremely valuable, will more than indemnify you. Now, these are the specific terms which I propose to you. If you refuse them, I am equally determined to fly." and if nothing but violence will avail to oppose my strength to yours, my strength, it is true, may not equal yours, but you may find to your cost, Cato, she added, with meaning in her eyes, that victory may not always depend upon that alone. Cato trembled like a leaf in the gale. The firmness and decision with which she had been addressed left her not the power of reply. Victoria, marking her consternation, began calmly to take off her robe, and in that gentle tone she knew so well how to assume, thus went on, I see, Cato, that you have the good sense to feel the propriety of my resolution, and the kindness to wish to assist me in it. Come, my good girl, prepare to undress. Oh, Signora, uttered out Cato, at length involuntarily taking at the same time the first step to divest herself of her attire. Oh, Signora, what are you about to do? To leave a tyrant, answered Victoria with quickness, her eyes darting fire. 
and I wish you, Cato, speedily the same good fortune. Come, hasten your movements. She proceeded, handing her the robe she had now taken off. Poor Cato mechanically proceeded to do as she was ordered, hurried in her naturally slow conceptions, yet in the naive goodness and simplicity of her heart, seeing something in the conduct of Victoria which she could not blame, for who, more than the poor drudge Cato, had reason to hate the tyrannical and never-satisfied Signora. She went on, but not so quickly as Victoria desired, to exchange with her gradually every necessary external part of her dress to render the disguise complete. Though the imperious, unaltered Victoria had acquired, by assumed gentleness, the love of the humble Cato, yet had she still the power of inspiring her with awe. Conscious of that, and knowing that her weak mind must, in the present case, be taken by surprise, and subdued by the force of language, she had preferred this mode to that of attempting sudden flight. Such an act would have roused her drowsy faculties, and, once impelled, it was possible she might have excelled in her swiftness of foot, which would have delayed, perhaps destroyed, her entire project. Besides, it was infinitely more politic to make Cato a friend than, by apparent ingratitude and want of confidence, render her perhaps an enemy. The transformation was at length completed, when Victoria, presenting Cato with the promised ring, slightly pressed her hand and said, My good, my honest Cato, if you possibly can, return to the house unseen and enter the chamber we have usually occupied. Secure the door. Should the Signora see nothing of us for the night, she will conclude that, supperless, we have tired to bed, and will not have the foolish good nature to disturb us, perfectly satisfied to have saved a meal. We are never in the habits of seeing her till late in the day. I shall then be safe from the reach of tyranny. At least, I hope so. And should we ever meet again, you will have no cause to repent the day you have acted. Adieu, my kind girl, for time flies. Adieu. Return homewards, and do not attempt to follow me. Oh, Signora, Signora, sobbed Cato, while the tears streamed copiously over cheek resembling the full-blown damask rose. If you really love me, Cato, said the calm Victoria, who felt not a shadow of regret at leaving her faithful companion, if you really love me, detain me no longer, but turn at once and let me behold you on your return. Cato, with a violent burst of tears and sobs, seized the hand of Victoria and impressed on it a kiss forcible in proportion to the affection it was meant to convey. She then turned hastily away and, without power to speak a word, proceeded towards the house with a speed almost sufficient to satisfy the impatience of Victoria. She remained, however, upon the spot, thinking every moment an age till the poor girl was out of sight, who, unconsciously, however, turned frequently round to obtain a last look of her she so much regretted to leave. At these periods, Victoria, though with a feeling of vexation and anger, would hastily wave her hand, as if to say, I see thee, but pray thee go on. At length, some trees intervening, excluded entirely from her view, 
the object she desired to lose sight of. Then, hastily turning from the spot, she bent her steps forward, fondly congratulating herself that every step she took brought her nearer and nearer to Venice. The sun had set about an hour. Victoria, who had walked, or rather ran, with the utmost celerity, from the moment that she beheld Cato no longer, had hoped in a short time to have penetrated the wood. She, however, found herself mistaken, for the wood was of extensive dimensions, and ignorant of its windings, she had not taken the shortest way to emerge from it. Though she continued her speed with unabated eagerness, night, to her confusion, began to draw in, and still she was wandering in its mazes. As it grew darker, the necessity of abstaining from her journey became evident. And whither can I seek for shelter tonight? she mentally ejaculated, casting her eyes around. A small white shed, embosomed at a distance among the trees, caught her view. She felt an emotion of gladness, and was hastening towards it, but suddenly recollecting that when her flight should be discovered, it was not improbable but the very road she had taken might be searched, and then, in such case, this shed being liable to the observations of others, as well as herself, might undergo some scrutiny. She determined instantly to avoid, as much as possible, the habitations of man, and to pursue the path that appeared the most unfrequented. Sooner than incur the smallest risk of being traced, the firm-minded Victoria decided on passing the night in common with the race of animal nature, beneath no other canopy than the star-sprinkled heavens. In pursuance of this resolve, she turned from the path that led, as she now perceived, to various scattered seclusions of humble life, and, beneath the umbrageous shade of a self-formed bower, composed of jessamine and the luxurious vine, overhanging and intertwining from a wild hedge on one side of the forest, she cast herself for repose. Here, thought she, may not I enjoy a few hours of more refreshing rest than hitherto I have obtained on more luxuriant beds. I am safe, too, in doing so, for the Signora will not even hear of my escape till noon to-morrow. Thus reflecting, sleep stole gradually over her senses. Fatigued by the unusual exertions of the day, for some hours she enjoyed undisturbed repose, nor, till the sunbeams playing through the tender branches upon her closed eyelids, and the carol of the birds, exhilarated by the divine rays of the morning, burst melodiously forth, did she awaken. She no sooner opened her eyes than, starting upon her feet, she again commenced her journey with the utmost speed. A few Naples biscuits, which she had the day before thought of securing, served her for breakfast, and she ate them as she proceeded. Her chief desire was now to leave behind her the wood. For this she increased her speed, and, after two hours' walking, found herself in a kind of path that she hoped would give her some unerring clue to proceed by. Eager with this idea, she swiftly measured its winding way. It terminated at length in a lonely canal, bordered on each side by poplars and acacias, and Victoria beholding this cast herself almost hopeless close to its edge. 
Oh, she cried, how deeply must I have wandered! On this melancholy canal no gondola, most likely, ever passes. To retrace my steps would be certain destruction to my hopes. Here, then, may I as well remain and die. She had thrown herself upon her face and despondently leaned her forehead upon her clasped hands. The soft gale sighed among the trace. No human being seemed nigh to interrupt the solitude. The melody of the birds among the lofty poplars and the spreading acacias alone broke the heavenly silence of the scene, and Victoria, indifferent to these wild beauties, so hostile to her wishes, remained prostrate and in despair. At length a low distant sound struck upon her ear. She started. Did it not resemble the remote noise of oars, dipping at measured intervals in the canal? No, no, it was but the breeze agitating the leaves of the trees, and again she reclined her head. Presently the sound returned, but with increased effect. It was accompanied, most joyous conviction, by a rough voice, singing a song common among the gondolieri. In an instant Victoria was upon her feet. She bent eagerly over the canal and described a gondola most leisurely approaching and containing only a single rower who was coasting coolly along the edge of the lake. Oh, thought Victoria, on that careless being depends my fate. How slowly he approaches, while I burn with impatience. Without increasing an iota in speed, by degrees the gondola came near. Victoria eagerly hailed it. Whither go you, friend? she asked. To Venice. Victoria's heart leaped. Wilt thou permit me, she asked, to enter thy gondola? Canst thou pay, my pretty one? asked the gondolier in return. Victoria was silent. All she had possessed, her ring, she had given to Cato. The gondolier was silent likewise, and her hopes began again to fade. At length she cast her eyes upon the countenance of the gondolier. Though coarse and brawny, she perceived that he was a young man. Alas, she said, I have no money, friend, but I have a lover in Venice, and if thou wilt convey me thither, the blessed virgin will ever send thee luck. The gondolier, in turn, cast his eyes upon Victoria. He beheld beneath her peasant's hat that she was beautiful. He conceived her, from her garb, to be a peasant in reality, and readily believed that she had no money. The gondolier himself had a mistress that he loved, but on account of his poverty her parents refused the match, and he saw her by stealth alone. He conceived a fellow feeling then for Victoria, and towing his gondola close to the edge of the lake, he stretched forth his hand to her, which she joyfully seized and vaulted into the gondola. Who can describe the sensations of Victoria? She could not speak. A thousand gay anticipations reveled in her mind, and their enjoyment was too sweet to be unnecessarily interrupted. The gondolier, however, thinking he had at least a right to her conversation for his kindness, did not long permit her to indulge. But how, my pretty one, he began, could ever you think of meeting a gondola where I found you perched? It is not once in a century that any of us pass hereabouts, except indeed at an odd time or so. 
why, if it had not been a cavalier that I took up this blessed morning, he, for the heats began, to carry him to a pretty villa that he has close almost to the borders of the canal, and between you and I carried a pretty signora along with him, his reason, no doubt, for setting off at such an hour, so private, you know. Well, if it had not been for that, I say, which is no business either of mine or yours, I was well enough paid, the devil a gondola you might have caught that way these six days. So you see, my pretty rogue, how lucky you are, and to get such luck for nothing, too. Victoria, who had long ceased to attend to the long-winded dissertation of the gondolier, catching only his last words, most cordially assented to them, at the same time expressing her gratitude for his good nature. To this the gondolier made no other reply than a broad, significant grin, winking at the same time one eye, alluding, as Victoria supposed, to the lover she had told him of, and then began again with the song he had been singing before she hailed him. Soon, to her infinite joy, Victoria beheld the towers and domes of stately Venice rising proudly from the Adriatic, encircled round by its green arms. It was the time of the carnival. Multitudes of gay and splendid gondolas appeared upon the lake as they drew near. They were now upon the point of landing at St. Mark's. Victoria turned to thank the gondolier for his kindness. He nodded and smiled and helped her out of the gondola, whispering in her ear that he should never at any time object to do so pretty a girl a service. Once more at liberty and at her own disposal, secure too in her disguise, Victoria, without trepidation, mixed with the gay crowd of St. Mark's Place in the faint hope, perhaps, of discovering among them one to whom her heart involuntarily pointed. Fatigued at length by exertion and want of food, for she had tasted nothing but a few biscuits since the preceding evening, and evening again was now far advanced, she quitted St. Mark's Place to seek a spot less thronged and confused. As she proceeded a sudden faintness, the consequence of exhaustion overcame her so far that, to prevent falling in the street, she hastened beneath a lofty portico and seated herself upon one of its steps. Leaning her swimming head upon her hand, she remained for some moments unable to move. Her heart palpitated, and she began to fear that mind might not always prove omnipotent over matter. By degrees, however, the faintness went off. She raised her head. The gay appearance of the streets and the canals, every window illuminated, and the splendid apparel of the masks, ill and overpowered as she felt, yielded her a sensation of the highest delight. She could remember only that she had escaped from a dreary solitude and the most abominable tyranny, and every feeling of sickness vanished at the idea. As still she continued sitting, her symmetrical figure habited in her homely garb, and those strong-marked features shaded by a large and simple hat, amid the gay and hurrying crowd that still continued to pass, a group of masqueraders caught her attention. Among them was one of a tall and noble figure, far surmounting the rest. He wore a domino of blue silk wrapped carelessly round him, so that his left shoulder with part of his vest was displayed, which sparkled with jewels. 
On his head he wore a Spanish hat of black velvet, surmounted by a lofty plume of snow-white feathers, confined in it by a diamond loop. Upon this attractive figure her eyes fixed, as he passed with a sort of confused recollection of having before seen it. The hasty glimpse she had caught, however, was insufficient to ascertain where, and involuntarily she started up to have a better view of his person. As she did so, he turned round. True, he was masked, but conviction flashed upon her senses. Sudden and irresistible was the impulse. She flew towards him, and laying her hand upon his arm, exclaimed, Berenza! Yes, oh yes! in a low but eager voice answered the mask, pressing her hand upon his arm. Mark me, but retire. Victoria drew back. The mask rejoined the group he had a moment separated from, and was soon lost in the crowd. Bitter was the vexation and disappointment of Victoria, by happy accident was thus discovered, and in the same moment lost, him on whom her chief hopes depended. But still, the splendid illusion of the scene remained. The mind of Victoria was supremely elastic, and she consoled herself with the reflection that she was still in Venice and at liberty. She continued mechanically moving along, till at length she found herself in a more retired part of the city, where resided some of the inferior inhabitants. From this place she hastened, but everywhere the brilliancy of the scene began now to fade. The night was considerably advanced. The gay crowd, visibly diminishing, had entered their houses to carouse, and the splendid light decreasing, assumed the appearance of a twilight, gilded by the last rays of the setting sun. The adventurous Victoria now began to perceive the possibility there existed of passing another night without shelter. The reflection was unwelcome to her feelings, but she preferred it to the remotest risk of discovery, by seeking out any of her former acquaintances or dependents. Again, therefore, seating herself beneath a portico, she leaned her head upon her hand, and gave way to reflections of a gloomy tendency. She was hungry and fatigued, and these circumstances added to the depression of her spirits. Suddenly a voice sounded in her ear. "'Follow me.' She raised her head, but perceived no one. Again, therefore, she covered her eyes with her hand, and endeavored to resume her train of thought. "'Rise,' said the same voice again. She started and instinctively arose. The portico at which she had seated herself was the first in the street. A tall figure darted, as it were, from behind her. It appeared enveloped in a dark cloak, and retreating swiftly to such a distance as to render its actual presence dubious, beckoned in an inclining attitude to Victoria. Glad even of so mysterious, perhaps dangerous, a mandate, she hastened to obey, as fast as her enfeebled limb would allow. The stranger perceiving that she did so, again retreated, but still continuing to invite. Victoria still pursued. At length, in a deserted part, he stopped. Victoria approached. He encircled her waist, and drawing aside his cloak, she discovered the spangled habit and the figure of Berenza. Hush! he hastily exclaimed, perceiving she was about to express her joy. Then, again withdrawing himself, 
he proceeded towards a small door in the street, at which he gave three distinct knocks. It opened cautiously. He put forth his hand and beckoned Victoria. She drew near. He seized her arm and conducted her into the house. The door closed. They had not walked many paces through a dark, narrow entry before Berenza stopped, and, taking a handkerchief from his pocket, bound it lightly over the eyes of Victoria, saying to her in a low voice, "'Fear not. This shall not be for long.' Victoria only smiled and did not answer. At length they ascended some stairs and appeared to enter an apartment. The Conte pressed the hand of Victoria and bade her take the bandage from her eyes. She did so and instantly uttered an exclamation of pleasure and surprise, for a sumptuous and brilliantly illuminated chamber struck upon her dazzled sight. The walls were covered with large resplendent mirrors that variously reflected her simply attired but graceful figure. Berenza appeared for a moment to enjoy her surprise, then, fervently pressing her in his arms, he said, "'Here, my lovely and beloved Victoria, will be sole mistress. She will no more fly from the man who more than life adores her.' "'Fly?' repeated Victoria. "'I never fled from thee, Berenza. "'Didst thou not, my love? "'Much then requires explanation, but not at this juncture. "'You look pallid and fatigued. "'Rest here a while till some slight refreshment is procured.' So saying, he gently seated Victoria upon a superb sofa, and for a few moments left her to herself. The most pleasing ideals now took possession of her mind, as in a recumbent posture she awaited the return of Berenza. Her fatigues, her difficulties, even her imprisonment, all was forgotten in her present prospect of long-desired happiness. "'Now, then, cruel and ungenerous mother,' she exclaimed, "'thou canst no longer deprive me of a happiness similar to that which thou so selfishly enjoyest, a happiness which, but for thee, my awakened fancy had never conceived, nor my soul coveted. Ah, mother, mother, thou didst deceive and betray me, but I shall still live to thank thee for teaching me the path to love and joy. As she concluded this wild expression of her misguided sentiments, Berenza entered, he had heard what she had uttered, and, pleased as he undoubtedly was that chance had thrown in his way the girl he had admired and loved, yet his delicate and refined mind experienced a sensation of regret at the avowed freedom of her principles. Yet still more severe were his reflections against the authors of this mischief, the parent, whose example and conduct had corrupted the sentiments of her daughter, and the wretch whose seductions had corrupted the parent. But mentally he promised himself to restrain and correct the improper bias of Victoria's character, for Berenza, though a refined voluptuary, possessed a noble, virtuous, and philosophic soul. He seated himself by the side of Victoria and gently took her hand. It was dry and feverish. You have undergone considerable exertion this day, he said, gazing on her countenance. Have you not, my sweet Victoria? Victoria smiled, and great was the dismay of Berenza when he learned that for upwards of twenty-four hours she had not tasted food. 
he instantly forbade her to utter another word till the nature was recruited, and the moment a collation he had ordered made its appearance, he tenderly pressed her to eat. Nor, till he thought her sufficiently refreshed, would he reply to the most pressing of her eager interrogatories respecting the real cause of his precipitate departure from Monte Bello. At length, when he explained to her this circumstance, and his conviction at the time of having acted expressly consonant to her own wishes, nothing could exceed the rage she evinced at the deception which had been practiced, and unwilling as was Berenza to countenance or encourage the undue violence of her disposition, he could scarcely avoid participating in the expression of her sentiments. The gross unworthiness of the parental duplicity had surprised and disgusted him, and if for a moment before he had been disposed to lament the effect of her daughter's flight upon the mind of Lorena, he now felt that compassionating sentiment give way to one of pleasure that Victoria had escaped, and escaped to him. It appeared, too, in the course of his explanation to Victoria, that, surprised at not receiving from her the smallest intelligence for a length of time, though, according to the intimation in the note, he was taught to expect he might shortly hear from her, he had, impatient at the delay, presented himself uncalled at Montebello. There had he learned that by her own desire his fair mistress had taken her departure from thence, and had expressly required that he should be kept in ignorance of her retreat. For that reflection having convinced her of the impropriety of encouraging his attentions, she had determined to endeavor at least to overcome it, and therefore conceived that absence was the most likely, nay, the only mode of forwarding so desirable a point. I confess, pursued Conte Berenza, from the knowledge I possessed of your character, I thought such sudden variation of sentiment almost incompatible with it, but having no alternative, for I felt I had no right to request an explanation from your mother or the Count, you, according to the law of things appertaining rather to them than me, and urged by the cool looks I received, I took my departure, secretly hoping that time would bring me some satisfactory elucidation of a circumstance that I could not help considering as somewhat mysterious. Ere their mutual explanations had ceased, the night was far advanced. The history of Victoria's sufferings at the Signora de Modena's, the mode of her escape, her difficulties, her precautions to avoid being traced, all, all must be detailed and expiated on air she would think of retiring. Berenza at length ventured to recur to the necessity there was for her taking some rest. Unwillingly, at his delicate solicitation, she agreed to do so. When, summoning some female attendants, he ordered them to show her to the chamber which had been hastily prepared for her. No sooner had Victoria reached her apartment than she requested her attendants to withdraw, for she was desirous of indulging alone the influx of her ideas. Delight and pleasure had such complete possession of her that scarce could her trembling hands perform the office of disrobing herself. Long, too, after she had entered her elegant bed, which rose in the form of a dome, bordered with deep gold fringe, did her buoyant spirits drive sleep from her pillow, 
At length, however, her ardent imagination became overpowered. She fell asleep, and brilliant fantasies gambled before her in the dreams of the night. Berenza, too, retired to repose, but his reasoning mind, though in such recent attainment of a desired good, was placid and unruffled. The images which occupied it were devoid of the romantic trappings of fancy. He beheld Victoria such as she really was, unembellished, unornamented. His keen eye that perceived her beauties discerned likewise her defects. He appreciated her character. He beheld at once her pride, her stubbornness, her violence, her fierté. Can I, asked himself, be rationally happy with a being imperfect as she now is? No, unless, lest I can modify the strong features of her character into the nobler virtues, I feel that all her other attractions will be insufficient to fill up my craving heart. Pursuing these reflections, Berenza fell asleep. Victoria beneath his roof, voluntarily in his power. He had leisure to retire and amplify on those errors which, while she seemed unattainable, struck him in a point of view infinitely less momentous. Such is the nature of man. End of chapter 8